0: Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God and His Word, is from the first letter of John, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 2. To which your first question may be, why 1 John? Uh, If you're new or relatively new with us here at Christ the King, we've just completed a reasonably long season in the Gospel of Luke. It was to Luke that we turned several months ago at the beginning of Advent, and then through Advent and Christmas and Epiphany and Lent and the first two weeks of Easter, we traveled through the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke and then to select moments in the life and teaching of Jesus and finally then to the Passion narrative and the two resurrection accounts at the end of the Gospel for Easter. But now, 1 John is where we're going to spend the remainder of the Easter season, so that including today, there are four Sundays left in Easter before we come to Ascension and then Pentecost. So this morning's just the first of what will only be four sermons from 1 John, and then after Pentecost, we'll begin a whole new series, about which I'll say more in the coming weeks. (laughs) Uh, To build anticipation. (laughs) But given (laughs) that we only have four Sundays in this letter, it's obviously the case that we'll only get a taste of it. The readings are longer than they would be if I were attempting a full exposition of the book. I won't cover every verse. I won't address every important question that comes out of these passages. But I do hope my intention here. Is that this short series will allow us to explore some of the themes and teachings of the letter, but specifically so that we can reflect a bit in this Easter tide, this Easter season. Because we've just spent almost five months considering the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that it would seem to me to be a reasonable question to pause here and to ask, what does it mean for me? What's to come about in my life now? What's the significance of all of this? How does the account of the life of the incarnated Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, apply to us today? That's why... I'd like to spend some time in 1 John and look somewhat thematically at what John is presenting. So for today, if that's my level A question, (laughs) how does the account of the life of the incarnated Son of God apply to us today? Well, my level B question, I guess, to go a little deeper, or not necessarily deeper, but at, at a next level in a way, would be to ask, what was the purpose of the life of Jesus? Or, maybe if I were to go to a level C question, I could ask it this way, what was he made manifest for? Because that's where 1 John is going, it's where it starts at least, he was made manifest That's where the whole letter begins in verses 1 to 4 in the prologue of 1 John, as it's often called. What's this whole letter based on? What's it rooted in? What's the starting point of John's letter and the starting point for our Christian theology? Because we can't answer the question of what the purpose of the life of Jesus was and therefore what it ought to mean in our own lives until we get a couple of things straight. And so John begins the book with these points i'd say he begins with two things i would say two things as the foundational level first that it's the historical reality of jesus christ that is the starting point the historical reality of jesus christ and then secondly i'd say a little more nuanced It is the understanding that John has of the significance of the historical reality of Jesus Christ that then stands at the beginning of this letter. So think about this for a bit with me. I'll be coming back to my level A and B questions in a bit, but first I'm at this beginning point the foundations to put in place first in verses 1 to 4. Those foundations being the historical reality of Jesus Christ and John's authoritative understanding of the significance of that reality. Look at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the thing you notice about those verbs in verse 1 is that they are unmistakably concrete, right? John is not speaking metaphorically or spiritually. He speaks physically the same eternal life that was from the beginning, and this is debatable, but I take that to be a statement of the eternal existence of the sun, of the pre-existence of the sun, it's often called, that this is from the beginning of all creation, from even before that point, the sun has always existed. That same eternal life that has eternally existed was heard, seen with eyes, touched with hands. Or in other words, it's the incarnation. John's insistent on the material reality of the word of life, that the eternal and the heavenly made himself corporeal and historical. If you've read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you know this is the big deal for John. So, for example, listen to 2nd John, verse 7. Here's 2nd John, verse 7. Many deceivers, John says, have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. You see, it is the historical particularity of the incarnated Christ that is at the foundation of what John has to say in this letter. Jesus Christ was a real person. I mean, we just spent months in the Gospel of Luke, but you can't miss the emphasis here that Jesus Christ was a real person whom many people heard, saw, touched and that even today while the Holy Spirit mediates the presence of Christ, we know that work of the Spirit never replaces the incarnation of Christ as the man, Jesus. He continues as an incarnate man. The Spirit testifies about Jesus. But the point of verse 1 is that Jesus really was with us. That the eternally pre-existent Son of God was here. But then look at verse 2. Because it's actually not only the historical existence of Jesus that matters. It's not even just that John and others saw and touched and heard him as a historical person, though that's essential. The gospel of the apostles did originate in their encounter with Jesus, the God-man. But then it becomes their testimony. That's what comes to us, their testimony. Verse 2, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. You see, the truth of the gospel isn't simply in the historical facts of Jesus' person and teaching and miracles. John and those with him give testimony. They proclaim the eternal life. They explain the significance of the historical facts of jesus look at verse three that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you in other words in these verses i think john claims that he understands the significance of the events of the historical life of jesus and that's critical This opening of 1 John just says what you and I as Christians would take as foundational to our faith. That the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, whom Jesus selected to bear witness to the significance of his own life and death and resurrection, right? Their eyewitness testimony now resides in the pages of the New Testament as it proclaims to us eternal life. Now, that's not to say I'm well aware that it's not to say that every New Testament book was written by an eyewitness of Jesus, clearly not all of them were. Luke didn't see Jesus with his eyes, but he worked closely with the apostle Paul who encountered the risen Jesus on the Damascus road. Mark though some hypothesize that Mark may have seen Jesus when he was younger, Mark is said to have produced his gospel from the eyewitness testimony of Peter. The point is that the New Testament as a whole is exactly what the opening of this letter in 1 John declares that it is. It's the repository of the reliable and authoritative witness to person and message of Jesus Christ. That's what John's doing in the very letter you now read in your Bibles. He's testifying. He's proclaiming. He's bearing witness, which means that this then allows me (laughs) to come back to, I guess, my level B question, right? These are the foundations I've just described. Then the level B question was, if that's the case, the historical Jesus was real, and John is the authoritative one bearing testimony about it, then what does John say was the purpose of the life of Jesus? That's the next question we've got to get straight. What was he made manifest for? What's at the center of the witness that John gives us in this letter? Well, my answer to that is chapter 2, verse 2 of this text. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I think that's the answer. I think that's what the Son of God was made manifest for. He is the propitiation for our sins. Now, There's two other places in this section of 1 John where I see something similar being proclaimed. So just note these as well. I see it in verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7, which says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And then here's the phrase, And the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin." That's one. Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin. And then I see it in verse 9, though not so explicitly, but the same idea. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I know there's a lot more happening in 1 John 1, 1 to 2, 2. What I'm trying to do right now is to drill down to the bottom. (laughs) What's at the foundation of what John is saying about Jesus, this one that he bore witness to and is testifying about? And then once we're at the bottom of it, then we'll come back up and we'll notice what else we can in this text in whatever time remains. But you gotta get the lowest, the the, the bottom level right. And what's at the bottom of John's proclamation of eternal life, as he puts it in verse 2? having witnessed the historical reality of Jesus, is this, that Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, died for our sins. Which, of course, has all kinds of implications for us, which we'll talk about here in a second. But first, just dwell on that. I know it's not new, if you've been around the church at any length. But this is what the one who was from the beginning came to do. This is at the heart of the gospel. This is at the heart of John's witness. He is the propitiation for our sins. What does John mean by that? (laughs) You hear it every week right? If you're a part of this church, you hear 1 John 2 verses 1 and 2 every week. It's one of the comfortable words, right? Which parenthetically does not mean warm and cozy words. It means strengthening words, encouraging words, the old English sense of comfort as coming alongside to fortify, right? Comforting words. You hear it every week, not by accident, because it is the heart of the proclamation. It's a little tricky, because the ESV decides to render John's language as propitiation, which is fine, but not a term you use every day. The bigger question in my mind is, do you know where this comes from? Because I think this is the key, and so... If you forgive it, I'll I'll do a little bit of Greek, just verbally, to help you hear how the language is working, because I think this is key. the The word that's behind this translation, propitiation, is a Greek word that is is it's hilasmas. That's the word hilasmas, which you could translate simply as atonement, or Atoning sacrifice. Now, in the whole of the New Testament, that word, helasmos, occurs only here and then in chapter 4 of this same book. Chapter 4, verse 10. They're the only two places that word appears. But it shows up six times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament where it refers always to the removal of the guilt that was achieved by practices of the Israelite priesthood. In other words, there was something offered that removed the guilt of the one for whom it was offered. It's the atonement. It is not the one making the atonement. It is the atonement itself. For those of you who know a little more about the Old Testament, you might also like to know that there's a related term you'll hear the similarity, a related noun that sounds like this, hilasterion, so hilasbas, hilasterion, you hear the cognate sense of that. The hilasterion occurs frequently in the Pentateuch to refer to that top covering of the Ark of the Covenant in Israel's most holy place, where blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. What I want you to see is that propitiation is a translator's attempt to give a specific nuance to what the atoning sacrifice did. But John's point is, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. Propitiation gives us specifically the nuance of something being done to win the favor of the god or the person in other usage of this word. Usually it's someone who is angry in some way and something is done to, to, to win the favor or to uh, dispel the anger of that person. But that's an interpretation of what the hilasmas did. What I want you to see is that John has something very particular in mind here. John's understanding is that Christ is the replacement for the animal sacrifices of the temple, that he is the hilas mas, he is the atoning sacrifice. So like early in his gospel, John reports that John the Baptist exclaims of Jesus, behold, the Lamb of His is the blood which cleanses us from all sin. He is the atoning sacrifice. This is what he was made manifest for. And brothers and sisters, that means one thing most clearly and importantly. It means that God loves us. It means that God loves us. 1 John 4, verse 10 is the only other place where that term is used, hilasmas. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the hilasmas, (laughs) the propitiation as the ESV renders it, the atoning sacrifice. He sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. What I would want you to remember about it is that it's the demonstration of God's love. And not for our sins only, our verse says in chapter 2, verse 2, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know that in the ancient world, the gods were often parochial. They were often geographically limited in terms of their territory, not this God, John asserts that Jesus Christ's sacrifice is valid everywhere for people everywhere, that is, for the whole world, that the Christian gospel John proclaims knows no geographic or racial or ethnic or national or cultural boundary. This is, after all, the same John who wrote another one of our comfortable words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The words of Jesus himself as recorded by John in John 3.16. So this then is what I think is at the bottom of John's understanding of what the Son of God was made manifest for. He came to die, an atoning sacrifice for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. Which brings me finally then back to my level A question that I had at the start of this sermon. So then what's to happen in our lives? What's the significance of it all? Why die as an atoning sacrifice if you're the Son of God? Well, there could be a few ways biblically to answer that, to say more or less the same thing. I think John answers it this way. It was for fellowship. Jesus Christ died to bring about fellowship. It's all through this passage, isn't it? We pick it up first in chapter 1, verse 3. Where after John has written there of the historical reality of Jesus and of his proclamation of eternal life, then verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Then watch this. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Just think that through for a second. John wants his readers to have fellowship with him, with them, that is, John and the community of believers with him. He wants his readers to have fellowship with them, which by definition means what? It means having fellowship with the Father and with the Son, with God himself. You can't separate the two. John invites his readers to enter into a relationship with, with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the significance of the hilasmas. Fellowship. A word that certainly means sharing not only in a close relationship, but having an association based on common purposes, common identity, common interest. (laughs) John invites us, you through proclaiming in this letter, into the fellowship of those who recognize that the eternal life that was with the Father has appeared on earth to be seen, heard, touched, that the purpose of this apostolic proclamation is to extend an invitation of fellowship, fellowship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ. That Fellowship comes to those who receive the apostolic gospel message of the significance of the life from God who walked among us. And what is that significance again? It is that he's the atoning sacrifice that is central to having fellowship with God. So you could back up. (laughs) There is a God. The violation of God's moral standard is sin. Both of which are difficult concepts to communicate today. But then, according to John in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And again in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Being in fellowship with God requires a clarity about the reality of sin. And having reached such clarity then and recognizing that the Son of God made flesh died as the atonement for our sin, what do we do? Verse 9. We confess our sins. If we confess our sins, John writes, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because the issue is, of course, that we are unrighteous, you see? Or to use John's language, that we have walked in darkness. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So do you see the simple truth here that we can't have fellowship with God who is light if we're full of darkness? In him is no darkness at all, John proclaims. Thanks be to God, something happens when, instead of denying sin, perhaps the more common option in the world today, when instead of denying sin, we confess it. Something changes. Something happens. And the thing that changes is us. It's here in a few places. It's, it's here, I think, in verse 7, where the blood of Jesus doesn't just forgive us, it cleanses us from all sin. It's here in verse 8, I think, where John points out that to deny sin means that the truth is not, in fact, in us. It's here in verse 10, where he says that to say we've not sinned would be to reveal that this change hasn't happened. The end of verse 10, his word would then not be in us. If we confess our sins, what happens? Well, we're cleansed. And the truth, this is God's very word, is put in you, brother or sister, put in us, in our lives, in our hearts, to use the common biblical language for this reality. This is John's way of describing the new covenant, of course. The way of relating to God made possible by the blood of Jesus. It's the whole point predicted by the prophets. This is John's way of putting the same truths you find, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 36. We've read this before. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 28. I will sprinkle clean water on you, says the Lord, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Do any of you know how the whole letter of 1 John ends? The very last sentence of 1 John. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Ezekiel continues, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Or in John's thought world, we walk in the light. We walk in the light. Is verse 7 of our passage. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, what's true? We have fellowship with one another. And then what's true? (laughs) Well, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, we just went from level B to A there. There's the whole thing in one verse. At the foundation is the blood of Jesus, the atoning sacrifice for sins. It is that blood which cleanses us when we confess our sins, as verse 9 makes explicit. And with hearts which are now cleansed, with the truth of God in us, by the power of the Spirit, we walk differently. We walk in the light, as He is in the light. It's New Covenant Christianity. It's the gospel. It's what the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ was for, brothers and sisters, to bring about new covenant fellowship among ourselves, yes, but between us and God as well. Fellowship with God and with one another. All of which is why, in summarizing the purpose of the whole letter, What would John say to them in chapter 2, verse 1? My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And you know, this week I've reflected on the fact that that verse really ought to be, or is, I hope, my whole goal as a pastor. Because my job as a pastor is not to do anything more than this. It is to preach to you so that you may not sin. So that you may continue to walk in the light. Not in sinless perfection, which John makes clear is not reality for any of us. But to walk in obedience to the covenant Lord, in new fellowship with him and one another. This is my job. This is what John is doing here for us in expounding from the pages of Scripture. And this is what Jesus himself was about. John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. And this is the judgment, Jesus says. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest their works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their works have been carried out in God. Here's John 11, verses 9 to 10. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. And in John 12, verses 45 to 46, and Jesus cried out and said, listen to this, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in